Well, good evening, guys. How are we doing? Yeah, that was a little bit better than earlier. Like, there's some energy in the room finally. Rockland Group, have you brought it yet? Are you here? Are you in the room yet? Welcome. We are thrilled that you were here. I know it was a little bit late for you guys getting here, so we are happy that you made it. We got a whole crew here. Um, my name is Mike. I get the great privilege of getting to be your camp speaker this weekend. It is my privilege to get to hang out with you guys. Um, John and I are competing for, like, best destination city for vacations. He's got Bakersfield. I got Fresno. So I don't know where we rank. Uh, I think it's kind of a, it's pretty dead even in a lot of ways. So, uh, but I hail from Fresno, moved there 17 years ago with my bride of now 21 years. And I got three Chiquitas at home, three girls. They're not so Chiquita anymore. I got a 19-year-old, uh, a 16, sorry, 17-year-old. My goodness, she keeps getting older. Be 18 next month. Uh, and a 14-year-old. So I live in a home with a lot of estrogen. So, fellas, I need some guy time this weekend. That would be good for me. Uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of that going on in my home, but uh, I am thrilled to get to be here with you guys. So, and as you know, as we're kind of working through this weekend, our, our, our camp theme as we're talking about kind of big picture is let there be light. We're looking at this idea uh, from both the New Testament and the Old Testament of let there be light, right? And that's kind of where we're going to be focusing our time together. Uh, Jesus himself, if you haven't read in John chapter 8, verse 12, says he spoke again, saying, I am the light of the world. Jesus claims to be that light. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But Jesus claims that that light existed long before, actually, he was around, right? Uh, he died on the cross before our sin, before that, before he was born in a, uh, a manger to a humble carpenter and his wife Mary in Bethlehem. In fact, Jesus says that the entire Bible actually is about him. Not just the New Testament, maybe the things that we would assume, but your Old Testament as well actually is all about this person of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, after he was crucified and raised from the dead, it says he was walking with his disciples. It says then beginning with Moses, the first five books of your Old Testament, and then with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. So Jesus is literally doing a Bible study with his disciples, walking through the entire Old Testament, saying, this actually is about me, from the books of Moses to the prophets and onward. In fact, Jesus claims that all of those are about him, the entire Old Testament. And the reality is, so often we miss this, because we miss the signs and we miss the things that are pointing to Jesus. Uh, when I was in high school, my aunt lived in Denver. And one year coming from Texas, where I grew up, uh, we decided to go snow skiing with her. And I just turned 16 years old. We were taking this road trip with my parents. We had this big old gray beater, like, creeper van. You guys seen those? That was my family's vehicle, okay? So we got in the car. Uh, after dinner one night, we got on the road, and we're driving to the wee hours of the morning. And my dad says, okay, your mom and I are going to the back of the van. We're going to sleep, and you're going to drive. So from like 1 in the morning to like 4, you're 16, you stay up forever anyway, so you get to drive. I said, okay. And he said, just stay on this road. It's going to turn from 35 to 135. So pay attention to the signs. Don't miss them. We're going to sleep. And I'm like, great, got this. I got one job. Drive straight. Don't crash. Pay attention to the road signs. Get off at the right exit. Well, as we were moving through, and it was dark, and I'm in unfamiliar territory, I, I missed the signs. I, I got confused. I drove the wrong way through the state of Kansas. We were supposed to be going northwest, and I drove northeast. Four hours out of the way on what was already a 14-hour road trip. 
from Texas. Needless to say, when my dad woke up at four in the morning and said, where are we, Mike? I was like, um, I, like a 35, it may have been a 135, I don't know, it was a blue sign. <laughs> I drove the complete wrong way. And the reason that I did that is because I missed the signs. I didn't understand how important they were and what they say about where they were directing me. In the same way, the Old Testament is like that. It is a sign that's pointing to Jesus. So we're going to look for Jesus in a very unlikely place together this entire weekend. We're going to spend time in the Word of God in the Old Testament. So if you have your Bibles with you, and guys, I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to spend our time together in Genesis 1, and then we're going to move through uh, some other scriptures in our time together. So Genesis chapter 1, is we look at this light of the world and what Jesus has to say about it. In fact, the very first verses of your Bible, Genesis 1, chapter 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. One of the most important and foundational verses in your entire Bible. In the beginning, there was God. Now, think about that for just a moment. What do we know about God from just the, the very beginnings of Moses' penning along with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? What do we know about God? Is that God revealed himself through his creation to us in his word and in Jesus Christ. The Bible speaks in this moment of, of our beginning, the beginning of our universe, and yet there is no beginning for God. Prior to Genesis 1-1, God was already there. He is eternal. He is all-existent in that regard. In the beginning, God, as he creates you and me and the things that we'll see, but he was already there. He is eternal. He has no beginning. Who is he? As we look at this description of God from Genesis chapter 1, he is described in the Hebrew, a word called Elohim, which means the mighty one. And Genesis 1 is all about that. Chapter, in chapter 1, 32 times in Genesis 1, we see this God described in that name used for him. He is the main character of chapter 1. And that word designates both majesty and royalty, but it also has the idea of even plurality. And it allows for this idea, as you and I think through it today, of Trinity. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Genesis 1.1, God the Father says, in the beginning... In verse 2, it moves into God the Spirit was hovering over the surface of the waters. And yet, as early as Genesis 1, verse 2, we see Jesus before he is incarnate, before he is in flesh, as we meet him in the New Testament. He claims to already be there. In the beginning, God. Listen to this. In Colossians 1, verse 16, Paul says this regarding Jesus. It says, for him, or for by him, speaking again of Jesus, All things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. It's as if God the Father is the architect and he's using Jesus as the means to create. In John 1, again, verse 3, speaking of Jesus, it says, All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing that has come into being came into being. Jesus is saying, I was present, eternal, with God the Father and the Spirit. I have always existed. In the beginning, God, that is me as well. He was there. And in Genesis 1, verse 3, again, the theme verse or the theme concept of what we're talking about, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, 
and there was mourning one day. God speaks this world that you and I are about to be created into, into existence. And he mentions this concept of let there be light. Now, if you know the story of Genesis chapter 1, when did the sun and the moon and the stars created? Anybody happen to know what day those are created in our seven-day creation? They don't come until day four. And yet in the beginning, on day one of creation, God says, let there be light. That light is God himself bringing light into the world through his son and through the spirit as well. In the beauty of the story of creation, of all the things that we could read about with God creating the plants and the animals and the seas and everything that we get to enjoy, the culminating event of creation, the climax, the most important piece of all of it, is day six when God creates man and God creates woman. Read it with me in chapter 1, verse 26 and verse 27. Then God said, Let us, the Trinity, more than likely make man, mankind, in our image, according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, and over all the earth. And let every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Did you guys hear a word that was repeated over and over again about how God created man and woman in those two verses? What did you hear? In his image. We are made in the image of God, unique to all the rest of creation. No other plant, no other animal, no other creature, no other thing that God created was made in his image. In fact, you see the word image used. And in verse 26, you see the word likeness. In his image or in his likeness. If you were to look at my children, if I were to show you a picture of them on the screen, some of them look like me. Some of them look like their mom, fortunately. The ones that look like me, eh, they got what they got, right? They walk like me. They are made in my image. So is that what God means when he says he made you and me in his image? Well, God is a spirit. God does not have a body. So as he speaks of making mankind, man and woman, in his image, what what does he mean by that? Uh, The idea is we reflect his glory. We are in some way, shape, or form like our creator. He created us to be like him. Unlike every other creature that he made, we are like him. In fact, this idea of being made in the image of God, it doesn't simply stop here in chapter 1. Chapter 2 goes into a long, elaborate story of how mankind was created. If you skip down to chapter 2, verse 7, I want you to notice one more verse that really uh, encapsulates how Adam and Eve and you and I were created as well. It says in verse 7 of chapter 2, Then the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Chapter 1, God spoke all things into existence, but not so with man and woman. Did you notice the words that are used there? When God literally made the sun or the moon, he literally spoke them into existence. In fact, chapter 1 says that he made the stars also, almost like an afterthought. But as he made mankind, man and woman, how did he make them? Did he speak them into existence? What does your text say? You can talk to me, it's okay. What does it say in verse 7? Formed, breathed. Do you see the picture? There's a hand crafting, there's intimacy. There's the 
the breath of God is he's forming us into his image. In fact, that word form literally has the meaning to, to shape or to mold or to fashion. The idea of intimacy and care and hands-on activity is expressed in that verse. In fact, that same word is used several times in your Old Testament with the idea of a potter working over his clay. Isaiah 64 verse 8 uses this word, speaking of God. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you our potter, and all of us are the work of your hand. If I were to invite you over to dinner to my house, all throughout my home, you would see things that were made by my father. My dad is a woodworker. He does it as a a hobby, and he's done it my entire life. My dining room table was made by my father. Our spice rack that hangs from our pantry door was made by my father. We have cutting boards and bookshelves, all of these things that my dad handmade. And he makes them with intimacy and care. They take long periods of time. And he works with his hands in, in this regard. And the care and the concern, the slow and intimate process that takes to, to bring these things to bear can be seen in his work. But not only is that idea used of how God formed us, but it doesn't say he just formed us. What else does it say in verse 7 again? He, he breathed life into us. You see, man is more than just a, a God-shaped piece of earth. God breathed life into him, into Adam, into Eve, specifically as this story is being recounted. He made the clay alive with breath. And until God breathes into man, man is a lifeless corpse. Man alone receives the breath of God directly. And these two words that are used to describe how God created you and me add this beautiful balance and intimacy. He formed us that expresses the relationship and the craftsmanship and the material that God uses, the intimacy, and that idea of breathing, that warmly, personal, face-to-face intimacy that he created you and I with. Now, could God have just spoken us into existence? Could God just have said, I make man, and there is a man, and I make woman, and there is a woman? Could he have done that? Say yes. Very good. All right, you guys are paying attention. God could have done that. So why? Why giving any way that he could create us? Why did he do it this way? Why would he go to this trouble, this care, this, this level of intimacy? I think there's two reasons that, as we can see, that come to bear on this. Two profound implications as to why God made you and I different from everyone else and everything else that we see in the Bible. Number one, it gives us value. Value is defined as to how much something is worth, either in monetary terms or in terms of importance. I have in my pocket a $20 bill. Hopefully you guys as high school students have seen these before, right? 20 bucks. How much is this worth? 20 bucks, right? Why is it worth 20 bucks? Because the United States government deemed it worth 20 bucks. Is this piece of paper that this is printed on worth more than a $1 bill, just the paper in and of itself. No, but it's given a different value, is it not? Anybody in here interested in having 20 bucks? I saw your hand first. Come here. You you got to volunteer. Come on up here, young man. What's your name? Cohen. Cohen. Where are you from, Cohen? Reedley. Reedley. Everybody say hi to Cohen from Reedley. Well, Cohen, what I didn't tell you... Is there stipulations of this 20? You still want this 20 bucks? Okay. What if, what if I did this? 
What if I crumple it up in my hands like this? Do you still want that 20 bucks? What if I dropped it on the floor and did this? You still interested in that 20 bucks? What if I spit on it? Well, it's COVID season. I probably shouldn't spit on it. Are you, are you still interested even though it looks like this? Are you still interested in that 20 bucks? Why is that? Because it's still worth something, isn't it? Give Cohen a hand. He answered the correct way. And you get to go home and say, eh, the, the camp speaker may have been meh, but he gave me 20 bucks. So congratulations. You earned that one, Cohen. The reason that all of you, if you had been a little bit more fast on the draw like Cohen was from Reedley, wanted that 20 bucks, even after what we see, even though it was defaced, even though something was happening to it, the reason is because that value is still inherent. Regardless of what that bill has been through, it's going to spend the same 20 bucks tomorrow at the Shake Shack. Are we opening the Shake Shack, by the way? Shakes on Cohen, everybody. Thank you for that. That was so kind of you to buy everybody shakes. No, he doesn't have to do that, right? God has the authority to deem something valuable. And the reason he formed us with this intimacy and this care is to show us that we matter in ways that other creatures in our creation simply don't. In fact, in Psalm 139, God says this about you and I. For you were formed, or you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. The psalmist goes on in chapter 8, verses 3 through 6. When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. The status, the value that God gives us is incredible. But it's not just value that God gives us with his, his creation. He also gives us worth. Worth is how we see ourselves as well as how we see others because of the inherent value that our creator has given us. Value is something that is deemed upon you. Worth then is how we see ourselves in light of that value. It's part of who we are because God deemed it so. Recently, I I came across the story of a a major league umpire who umpired in the MLB for almost 40 years, a big burly man. And one of the stories that is told about this guy by the name of Bill Clem, in one of the games he umped, he was in the bottom of the ninth. The game is tied. The home team is at bat. There's one out. And the winning run is on third. And the batter now hits a ground ball to the shortstop. The throw comes home to the catcher. The tag is placed on the runner as he, as he slides into home. And in the midst of this big cloud of dust that occurred from this tag and the, and the slide, nobody could see the results of was this guy safe or was this guy out. And the home team from their dugout is screaming, safe, safe. And the visiting team is screaming, no, he's out, he's out. And Bill Clem, this big old man, said, everybody hush. It ain't nothing till I call it. And in the same regards, God has the ability to make those sorts of statements in our lives. He has called it. He has deemed you and I having worth and value because he is our creator. And our world has all kinds of opinions about humanity today. Some are screaming safe. Some are screaming out. But God says it is nothing until I call it. 
And as your creator, as the one who formed you and molded you with my hands, you have value to me. You have worth to me because I deemed it that way. He has spoken and bestowed those things to you and me. Back in the day before we had iPhones, you would walk around the city of London. And there's a large structure there called Big Ben. And back years and years ago, you would see men pull a watch out of their their coat with oftentimes a a string attached to it or a chain attached to it, and they would look at their watch, and they would look up at Big Ben. And what they were doing in that moment was looking at what their watch said versus what the standard said. And if the standard said one thing and their watch said another, you changed your watch to adjust to the standard. Friends, we live in a day and age that's very similar, that we have these very odd views about how we view mankind and our worth. And yet we need to adjust our lives back to the standard of what God says about us. Our watches, in a lot of ways, are out of sync. So let's bring this home just a little bit. As we talk about worth, as we talk about value, friends, many of you, as you come here tonight, have been through some challenging stuff. I don't know what your 13 years of life have looked like to your 18 years of life. I haven't walked in your shoes but I do have three girls at home, and I know oftentimes what they experience, the difficulties in their life. Some of you have suffered hardships. Some of you have been through things in life that make you feel less worthy, that God doesn't love you, that he couldn't possibly love somebody that has done these things, have experienced these things, that struggles with sin in their life. And many of us, just like I do as well in my own struggle with walking with the Lord, feel a sense at times that we're not worthy, that we're not valued, that we're not loved by our creator. And what God is saying in the midst of this is your opinion is not what defines reality. My opinion as your creator is what is true. I love you. I care for you. I made you, and I deemed you valuable. And just like that $20 bill, regardless of what it has been through, its value simply does not change. Now, unfortunately, as you guys know the story moving forward in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3 is coming, the fall of all mankind. And we know the the condition of that, that $20 bill, so to speak, is about to get wrecked. It's the story of Adam and Eve and them stepping outside of uh, their desired, their, their, their creator's desire for them, believing a lie instead of believing the word of God. It's like hitting a brick wall at 90 miles an hour. It says in chapter 3, verse 6 of Genesis, as we kind of survey this, these, these three chapters, when the woman saw, speaking of Eve, that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Adam and Eve, in this moment, they sin. And sin enters the picture for mankind for the very first time. And friends, as you fast forward through our scriptures, specifically looking in the New Testament, the the Bible paints a very devastating picture of the the consequences and the result of sin in our lives. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, that you were dead in your transgressions and sins, that something spiritually died in you and me, that we are all under sin. The Bible paints sin as a taskmaster of which we are slaves to. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
this condition of sin got handed from Adam and Eve down to you and to me. Not just in deed, but in our very nature as well. And it escaped nobody ever in all mankind. We are all sinners by deed and by nature. And Romans 3 goes on to say, there is none righteous, no, not one. All of us are suffering, in a sense, underneath the curse of sin. Now, you may be asking yourselves, Mike, what does this have to do with the light of the world? What does this have to do with Jesus? Well, the reality is everything. Because God so loves you, and God so values you, that he wants a relationship with you. In fact, God made Adam and Eve to have a personal, intimate relationship with him. We see in chapter 3, verse 8, God walking in the cool of the day, in the midst of the garden that he created, this idea of this regular fellowship that he had with Adam and Eve before they sinned. He wanted this type of relationship with them, and he wants the same with you and I. The problem, however, is this issue of sin. How do we deal with this problem? A creator God that loves us, that values us, that deems us worthy in his eyes, and yet sin has separated us from him. And God can't simply blow off sin. He takes it very, very seriously. Well, God gives us a preview, a preview, in fact, that we're going to look at for several talks moving forward of how God deals with this issue. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, I want you to notice a verse that happens after the fall of Adam and Eve. It says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. As you guys remember, and whether you're a church-going person or maybe this isn't your thing all the time, what did Adam and Eve do after they sinned? What did they sow upon themselves? Fig leaves, right? We've heard that story. Immediately after they sinned, They were ashamed, they were naked, they realized that they were naked, and they immediately covered themselves to cover their sin. They were already clothed. So why does God, in verse 21, take garments of skin and clothe Adam and Eve? There's a far deeper meaning than some just physical covering. What God is saying is, your own actions, your own, what you think, abilities to deal with sin on your own, to cover your own shortcomings, That doesn't work. It doesn't work with sin. Man-made attempts won't heal what ails you. God has to provide the solution. Now, question. Where did those garments of skin come from? Think about the garden that they're in. Where did God find a garment of skin? He had to kill an animal. And Adam and Eve had to sit and watch as an innocent animal who had done nothing wrong, that God took that animal's life and took the skin of that animal, took its shed blood, and covered Adam and Eve with his provision. This is the picture, that God, in order to have this relationship that he so desires with his creation, found a substitute, a a workaround, a provision for sin. One who would take the punishment for sin on behalf of someone else. And friends, we know that ultimate person to be ultimately Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That is the picture and the story of why Jesus ultimately came to this earth. That God provided a way for the innocent to trade places with the guilty. 
that our sin would be covered and ultimately be covered. Friends, I don't know where you guys are today, and I don't know what this weekend is intended to look like for you, but I know if you're like me, you wrestle with the presence of sin in your life, and you wrestle with what that does to you at a core, at a core level, with your value and with, with your worth, because maybe the things that have happened to you, maybe because of the, some of the choices that you have made, and you wonder if you're honest, God, do you care about me? Do you love me as I am? Not this perfect, pristine, hot-off-the-press $20 bill, but my bill's been through a bunch. It's been crumpled, it's been defaced, but it's not erased in terms of the image of God that is born in it. And I want to encourage you as we explore this idea together of what the light of the world in the person of Jesus Christ has done on our behalf, that you would give consideration and thought to this, and that you would walk away tonight with one thing in mind and one thing to remember, that God loves you regardless of what you have been through. And he has found a way through the person of Jesus Christ to exchange the innocent for the guilty, that Jesus Christ bore our sins on a cross. An innocent man died for the guilty, and that, friends, is you and I. Blaise Pascal, the famous mathematician and philosopher, said in the 1600s, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person which cannot be filled by any created thing but only by God, the creator. Friends, we're going to meet that God this weekend as we study and as we dig into God's word together. In just a few moments, you're going to go to some small groups and you're going to discuss with your cabin groups this idea. Would you be in these moments vulnerable, willing to maybe have some some deeper level discussion about who God is to you, how he views you and how you view him? And would you consider Jesus Christ, his provision for you on the cross for all of our sins? Let's pray. Father, thank you for these pictures that we get to see of you. And thank you, God, in creation, that we get to see the level of intimacy and care and detail that you went to to create us. And despite the fact, just like Adam and Eve, that we are flawed, that sin has affected us at the very core and fiber of who we are, that did not cause you to stop loving us. It did not cause you to stop pursuing us. We still have value and worth in your eyes. Father, would you show us what it looks like to be loved by you this weekend? For those of us that maybe have never seen the love of the Father, would you allow these next days that we have together to be a time for us to experience that, that we would embrace how much you love us through the picture of what your Son has done on our behalf. God, we are grateful for your word and for a time to dig into it and to learn a little bit more about you and your Son, in whose name we pray.